Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Tonight, January 2nd, 2020. Happy New Year, everyone. ABC News' 2020 is running a special called What is Jeopardy? All on the cultural ramifications of your and my favorite game show, Jeopardy. As a result of that, I decided to rerun both of my episodes with Alex Trebek combined into one. So forthwith, you guys may experience both part one and part two of my interviews with Alex Trebek all on one track. How dope is that? I don't know. Anyway, enjoy this listening. And then later on tonight at 8 o'clock, 7 central on ABC News, tune in for 2020. What is Jeopardy? I am past the age when I feel the need to have an impressive car to impress people with. I went through that when I started my career here in Southern California. I purchased a... 1956 Bentley Park Ward, Mulliner Park Ward Convertible. And it cost... Welcome to A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. On an overcast mid-September morning, at around 8.15 a.m., my producer Marie and I awaited Allison, Jeopardy's Director of Communications. We were tired. We had been sitting in a car outside the walls of a Studio City Los Angeles house for around five minutes. The night before, though, we had been at O'Brien's, a Santa Monica bar popular for its trivia nights. That night, a team with tournament champions second place finisher Alan Lynn and I, in a very last minute tiebreaker, beat another team led by Pam Muller and the winningest game show contestant in the history of the world, Brad Rutter. After perhaps the most momentous and joyous win of my trivia career, celebrations were had and sleep was not. We were tired. Upon Allison's arrival, we drove through the powered gate into what at first looked like a modest home. Then we noticed the side buildings and that the Spanish-style main house was built almost at this side of the steep hills of the surrounding valley. We would later find out that the house was constructed in the 20s or 30s by a producer who made his money off of cowboy films. And within those hills, in the rear of the complex, a western-themed 200-person ballroom, originally part of the property, was later repurposed by the current owner as a private screening theater. In a way, the home was opposite of this week's guest, Alex Trebek. Whereas the house, at first glimpse, seems of moderate size and accessible, yet is secretly a sprawling compound, Alex seems, in his polished garb and erudite pronunciation, a paragon of inaccessibility, yet in reality is very much a humble man of relatively normal background. Reinforcing the narrative, Alex met us at his front door in a denim work shirt, took us through a foyer, past a small library full of vinyl, and into his home office. Books on military history and religion were upon the shelves. Keys to cities and official proclamations for Alex Trebek Day and the like were on the walls. 
I set up my mics. Alex took a seat at his high-backed leather desk chair, and we began. I am so pleased to bring you part one of my two-part interview with the host of Jeopardy, an American and Canadian icon, Alex Trebek. Welcome, 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 welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because it is a podcast and people listen to podcasts whenever they might. Today is immensely special and I feel immensely privileged because we have been welcomed into the home of the one, the only, the Mr. Alex Trebek. Alex, hi. Good to have you here. No, <laughs> good to have you here. This is uh, this is exciting as all get out. Uh, we are in not too sunny California right now, and uh, a little overcast today for some reason, but that's all right. And the tournament of champions had just taped, mm-hmm. um, and I cannot tell you who won or who was in the final. I do not want to know, and I want everyone else to be surprised when it airs. Good, uh, but we're not going to talk about Jeopardy because. That's all on the record. You want to know uh, anything about Alex's history with Jeopardy and rising through the ranks of radio in Canada? It's all out there. And also, you're probably sick of it because every single day during Jeopardy, in the breaks, people ask the same questions over and over again. What's the hardest answer you've ever asked? And uh, Yeah, but uh, what you have to remember is that although I've, I've heard those questions hundreds of times, for that individual asking the question, it's their first and only time they will get to ask it. And so I don't want to demean them. I don't want to diminish the importance of their question. And I try to answer as fully as I can, even though the response I give is the same one I've given probably <laughs> 30 or 40 times in the past month. Right. Uh, if you couldn't be host Jeopardy, what would you be? You're like, I, uh, Royal Governor of Canada, correct? No, Governor General. Governor General of Canada. Or uh, Pope. If I were not hosting Jeopardy, I would <laughs> like to have been Pope. And when you're not working on Jeopardy, what do you do? I work around the house. I love fixing things. And that's, and exactly. that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Um handiwork homework one of the photos of you uh went viral knee deep in the floorboards of your bathroom my wife's bathroom i uh, decided this year because it's been pending for a long time to redo her bathroom the way she wanted it done and she wanted a soaking tub she wanted her old jacuzzi type tub taken out and that was an ordeal we had to cut it it's uh, cast iron covered with porcelain, of course, and we had to cut it in three pieces because it was so big and so heavy we couldn't get it out. Sawzall? Sawzall, metal cutter, and uh, I can't remember if we used a torch on it also, but we finally got <laughs> it out, and she wanted a soaking tub, and I said, well, we better reinforce the floor. So I crawled into the crawl space under her bathroom, and I said... We're going to need some support here, and I also have to readjust the floor joists in order to accommodate the incoming water lines. So I did that, and uh, when we show it at tapings of Jeopardy, uh, the audience reacts in a positive way because we show them the before and the after, and the after looks pretty good. The after does look pretty good, and all the fixtures, tiles, everything, that was uh, all, all your choices, or or were you guided from above by by the misses? Oh, no, I, Jeannie is the one who selected uh, the tiles. She picked uh, the pattern for the floor tile, 
and uh, I stayed out of that part. I, I hired the subs when I wasn't doing work, and uh, it all seemed to have worked out pretty well. There's, uh, she's happy with it. I'm happy. And uh, uh, her next project is her office and her closet. We've done her closet. She wanted it wallpapered. I said, who wallpapers a closet? It's going to be <laughs> hidden by all the clothing. Didn't matter. But her closet looks darn good. And now her office, uh, we just sent her sofa out to be reupholstered um, yesterday. And that'll come back in a week or two. And then her little area, her bathroom, office, closet, all in one corner of the house on the main floor, uh, will have been done. And she will be happy, and that will make me very happy. <laughs> um, all right, so let's let's go through the start. You know, when you're when you're demoing uh, when you're demoing a floor and a wall to make room for this like heavy duty bathtub. What are you What are you looking for to make sure that uh, you know the bones of the home are strong and structurally sound? Well, let me use my daughter's house as an example. Perfect. She decided she wanted to start a career as a home renovator. So I helped her out, and she bought a small house in Sherman Oaks. And she was going to renovate that. And I said, she asked me for my help. I said, sure. So I started demoing that. And the first thing I had to demo was a brick uh, wall that was three feet high. It was almost like a, a divider planter in the middle of the house. Well, not quite the middle, but off to the side, uh, separating the dining area from the living room area. Oh, sort of like a three-quarter high, yeah. Yeah. And of that typical 50s sort of era feeling. You got it. And so I started, and uh, I have large pry bars. I have power equipment, and... Away I went, and then I noticed that, whoops, there's a beam here that is being supported by a pole at the corner of this wall, so we have to shore that up. So we're going to need to support the whole ceiling, and that's about 22, 24 feet long, right? Okay, so she hired an architect and got plans done, and then I hired uh, a builder, and I worked with him, and a lot of the grunt work is the kind of stuff that I wind up doing. I get to crawl. <laughs> you under, get the hammer. I get to crawl under the under the the floor. I pulled out the. I'm trying to remember who had the house before. Some show business personality, but it was his office, and he must have had a dozen phone lines going in there. And oh. I pulled out, and I have them in my shop out there. Uh, probably, oh, close to a thousand feet of telephone wire. What did he have? Like his own private switchboard? Like not quite, but almost. Yeah, you know, you'll need two or three fax lines, two or three whatever lines, uh, right, for the internet and An phone lines, analog for your office. Yep. And uh, so I, I kept pulling stuff out and advising her, and finally we finished it, and fortunately. Or unfortunately, she liked it so much, she decided she was not going to sell it. 
she was going to live there. <laughs> isn't that isn't that the case? My brother's been buying homes too up uh, in upstate New York, and uh, half of them he's like, eh, "Should I?" I'm like, "You already got a house. Do you yeah. need Do you need another?" So she's happy in that house, and then she had to, after making that decision to stay there, uh, we had to find another place for her to fix up, and she did, and. She did not want my help at all in the next one. We butted heads a little bit in the first one because is that because you did such a good job? No, it's because <laughs> it's because uh, she has definite ideas about how she wants to decorate or lay out uh, the rooms, and I'm very old fashioned in that I don't necessarily think it's always the best idea to throw stuff out and she does she she wants to get rid of all that old stuff and replace it with brand new and i say well wait a minute this is perfectly good and it, it's useful and it's not bad looking and but no so in our second house she did it all on her own sold that house and set a record for uh, price per square foot in that area so I'm not worried about how successful she's going to be. I guess you're uh, you're cut out of the loop on this one then. Absolutely, and I don't mind. <laughs> but every once in a while when she needs my help, she'll come to me and say, can you look in? Can you do this? Can you do that? Where'd this come from? Were you, uh, were you handy growing up? Uh, you, yeah, did I your was. family do uh, you know any hard work and labor and stuff or just a knack for it? All of my mother's brothers were involved in one way or another in the construction industry. Got it. Either in carpentry, uh, painting, uh, manufacturing windows, doors, things like that. And so I watched them as I was growing up. My dad was not very handy at all. Uh, but I paid attention to mom's brothers, my uncles, and I saw how they did things. I had one uncle whom I loved, when I bought my first house in Toronto shortly after moving there to uh, work for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, it needed fixing up and it needed painting. And there were a lot of windows. And I don't like painting windows too No, much. they're terrible. And my Uncle Arnold, I had him take the train from Sudbury, my hometown where he lived, to Toronto, eight-hour trip, and I asked him to paint the house, and he said, sure. And he said, I'm going to not rush this. He says, I'm older now, and uh, I, I don't work as fast as I used to. I said, that's fine, Uncle Arnold. And he started, and the great thing about Uncle Arnold is that he was ambidextrous. So he Truly, could, though. Yes. Yeah. And he could cut windows with his left hand or his right hand. And he would just sit there on a stool or on the windowsill, cigarette in one hand, paintbrush in the other, taking his time, and painted the house. And then moved to the other hand. Yep. So he's not moving the ladder. He, he could stand and do this side, stand yep. and do that. Absolutely. Wow, could and, you imagine if everyone could do that? Yeah. And, uh, and he didn't get a lot of paint on the glass. And that was wonderful also. And Without he, tape. Without tape. Oh, my God. No tape. No, oh, yeah, he, tapes, you know, you're cutting, tapes for weaklings. Yeah, you're cutting windows. You're not uh, taping them and then splashing paint and then pulling the tape off. Yeah. That's... So that was fun. And then he left, and I thanked him. And uh, um, But again, 
just paying attention whenever subs have come to do work, whether they be plumbers or electricians. I watch and I look carefully at what they're doing. And I say, you know, I could do that if I had that tool, if I had uh, these parts. And, uh, yeah, in a while I'll take you into the garage and show you. It's a mess now because I've got so much stuff stored there. There's no room for a car, of course. It's a three-car garage that has no zero cars. Zero cars. <laughs> and uh, But you'll see I'm, I'm well-equipped to handle almost anything that's your uh that's your toy shopping spree uh no the midlife crisis didn't uh hit hit the porsche and the lamborghini bug it hit the uh table saw and uh and uh dremel rotary tool bug absolutely we have one uh stage manager at jeopardy who also works on wheel of fortune and when we were taping our tournament of champions yesterday i pulled up and i said holy smokes that's a brand new Porsche, all electric vehicle. I said, "Who does this belong to?" And they told me. I said, "Wow, okay." Said, was it was it Glenn? No. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> no, he's a he's a Corvette guy. Is he? Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, okay. We don't don't rat him out. We <laughs> we'll let the uh, Jeopardy rabbit hole figure that one out. Good. An all electric Porsche, Jesus, uh, if only. Um, so what's, what was the biggest guilty pleasure tool that you're like, I broke the bank on this. I really don't need it, but I got to have it. Oh boy. I don't usually waste money on tools unless you count the number of the same kind of tool. I have a lot of drills. A lot of drills. I have a lot of saws. I have enough screwdrivers of all types to last me and you for the rest of our <laughs> lives, even if we break one every year. Uh, so I don't splurge on big items. Uh, power washer, that was a good purchase. A uh, The power washer, though, is that one of those, you know, the old adage, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Is the, with the, When you have the power washer, you're like, yeah, I could power wash this. Yeah, all right. You, no, no, no. Uh, I don't look at my tools that way. And unfortunately, sometimes things like power washers and uh, pressure tanks, air pressure tanks, sit there for too long, and they get they develop problems, and then I have to take them in to be serviced. But uh, no, if, if there's a need, and I did buy, oh, one. One tool I purchased that I had occasion to use only once, and that is a propane tank with a burner attachment on the end for repairing roofs with uh, the kind of material that has to be fired. Right. You fire the flame, and that softens it, and then it sticks. And then the you roof. lay it down. Then, yeah, as you're as you're laying it down, you're you're burning it, and uh, uh, so uh, that was a one-off. That's a pretty specialty piece I've, of equipment. I only used that once. Yeah, I could see that. But if I get a leak up there, I'm <laughs> dragging that sucker onto the roof and uh, doing my thing. I think there's another uh, video of uh, a video or a photo of yourself that went sort of viral of you doing exactly that. You are on the roof of something with either a nail gun or a drill gun and some tiles in hand. Uh, I think it's so 
absolutely amazing that here you are at the pinnacle of your profession, yet you're like, I got, I just got to do this. I don't want someone else to do this. I got to do this. It's not always that I don't want someone else to do it. It's that you can't get someone else to come and do it immediately. Usually they'll say, okay, we can get to you a week and a half from this Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. <laughs> I want it done now. So if I can do it, I'll do it. I've become very adept at walking on uh, Spanish tiles on the roof without cracking them. And uh, even though I outweigh most Hispanic workmen who uh, can walk on anything and not break it, uh, but uh, I get out there and I do my thing and I try to... One of the amazing things about leaks, and I've just dealt with a situation... Pardon my ignorance but how does one get leaks in a place that doesn't rain it's going to rain and last year it rained a lot uh, very very hard for quite a while and we got more rain last year than we than than we've had in many a year and as a result there was a lot of flooding there was flooding in the garage so i wanted to deal with that issue this year and so I did. I installed a new drain line outside in the uh, garden area, and I had a workman come in and dig a trench for me to put in another run. And by golly, we found uh, a drain hidden in the ground. And I tested it, and I said, hey, it works. It's still good, so that's great. And then I poured some concrete to keep the water from flowing down between the outside wall and the garage, so oh, yeah. hopefully it will not leak into the garage, but some might, who knows, but at least I've made a pretty good effort at dealing with that problem, but I'll find out when it rains, so I'm eagerly waiting for the, <laughs> for rains the rain to come, and they'll be here in about a month and a half. So Is that is that the rainy season in Los Angeles? It'll start uh, late November, December. That's when the first rains are coming. I guess when I was here last in January, it actually, yeah, it rained like three straight days while I was here. And uh, and then I left and my friends texted me saying, it's beautiful now. You took the rain with you. Yeah. But the rains came back in February and March. So we'll, we'll get rain. Nice, nice. What do you, uh, I'm, segue quick. I'm a, I am a car nut. I'm a, quite a psycho car nut, but um. You drive a nice uh, Dodge pickup. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a natural extension of your uh, your workmanlike bent. I don't know. Um, perhaps more than that, it's just an indication that I am past the age when I feel the need to have an impressive car to impress people with. I went through that when I started my career here in Southern California. I purchased a 1956 Bentley Park Ward, Mulliner Park Ward convertible. And it cost, I think, $34,000 at that time. It was very impressive. And I recall driving home from NBC Studios in Burbank one day, and I was on the Ventura Freeway, and a white, newer Cadillac convertible pulled up next to me, And behind the wheel was Wilt Chamberlain. (laughs) And Wilt looked over at me and at my car, and he said, fine-looking car. And I looked over in his direction at the blonde lady sitting next to him, and I said, 
good-looking companion. <laughs> uh, and he just drove on. But that car was a beauty. And I sold it some years later for $54,000 because I needed the money to build my first house here in Southern California. And if I were to try and buy a similar model Bentley convertible now, it would cost a million and a half. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. But then I bought an Italian car. One of the first cars that I really wanted when I began in broadcasting, I was 22 years old, and I saw a commercial for, I forget what the product was, but in the commercial they used a Ferrari Daytona Roadster. Yep. And that car at that time sold for $26,000. I couldn't afford it, but I thought it was beautiful. And then when I came to California, by then it would cost well over a hundred or $200,000 for that vehicle. But the guy who had designed it had designed another car called the Italia, which could be bought for much less. So I bought an Italia. And I fixed it up and redid the interior myself. I had uh, an upholstery shop do the seats, but I did all the the uh, the interior of the auto and the carpeting and stuff like that. And uh, that was a wonderful car. But unfortunately, here in Southern California, with a lot of stop-and-go traffic and the tremendous heat... It kept overheating. Yep. And so I finally decided I'm going to sell this one. And I sold it to a guy who drove it to Arizona. And I told him beforehand, I said, you got to be careful because although I put in a new radiator and two extra fans, I said, the car will overheat. He called me back that night and said, made it all the way, not a problem, did not overheat once. I'm here home in Arizona. Good for you. So... Yeah, so I've had the Italia, I've had uh, a Jaguar uh, XK140, and I've had the Bentley. So those were the exotic cars, if you will, of my youth. But since then, hey, I'm not out to impress anybody with what I'm driving. I, I don't have to show off that way. And what I've discovered over the years is that having a pickup truck is really handy. If you're moving furniture, if you're doing work around the house, if you need to haul stuff, it's great. But then having a pickup truck means you're the friend with the pickup truck. So you get the phone call like, That's okay. uh, hey, Alex, can I, can I, uh, you want to come over and help me with the couch? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In Canada, in the 1960s, I had a 1965 Cadillac convertible, which was my pickup truck. I was building a ski chalet at Georgian Bay, and I would haul... 10 and 12 foot lengths of lumber in my convertible. I'd set them the edge on the dash. I'd unzip the rear window. All and right. The, the lumber sticking out and it never stuck out beyond the, the rear bumper because that automobile, the 65 and the 66 Cadillac are so long. I wanted to buy one not too long ago just to revisit my youth, if you will. And it wouldn't fit in the garage, so I passed on it. Yeah, those I uh, those a friend of my father's stored one in one of the barns at my house for uh, a year or so, and it was white with a burgundy leather interior, and it had power windows and power mirrors and everything. Is it still available? I don't know. I don't know what happened to that. But it was 1965, and this will be like in the early to mid-80s when I was a kid, and our family cars didn't have power windows or power locks or power mirrors or air conditioning. And here was this 21, 24-year-old car in the 1980s that uh, had all of that. I'm like, what? Cadillac, whoa. When you Um, get rich, you can buy one yourself. But right now, crank that window. Yes, exactly. And now the now the funny thing is I've got like two cars. I've got my like daily driver car, but I've got my collectible collectible car, that's not even a word. And my collectible car is uh, of my youth. It's a 1989 Honda Civic station wagon. Uh-huh. It was the car I one of the first cars I ever owned except Mine, the one I had, was called the Ratmobile. It had a crack through the window, no muffler, one headlight. Uh, and uh, there's a really good version of it that had four-wheel drive and a six-speed transmission. Mm-hmm. So when I won Jeopardy, I found that in Salt Lake City, Utah, bought it on eBay, beat 43 other bidders, flew out, sight unseen. The owner couldn't be there to give me the car, the keys, so he left it under the doormat. I literally picked up the doormat, saw my new car, unlocked it, put New York plates on, and drove it back from Salt Lake City to New York. Way to go. Not a hitch. Not a hitch in a 1989 Honda. And have you re- revamped it since then? I, it, 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 was in, it was in mint condition. Oh, well. Yeah, it, it's untouched. I took it to a car show, and they were like, are you going to modify this? I go, no, absolutely not. It stays like this. It's, it's a time capsule. Uh, everywhere I drive, people are like, are you selling that? I go, Absolutely not. Uh, so that was my revisiting youth, and I, I like the the contrast. Your revisiting youth is an awesome Cadillac, and mine's a dorky Honda station wagon. <laughs> Another car that uh, takes me back quite some ways. I owned the VW Thing. Oh, the things are awesome! And uh, I sold that in order to buy the Italia. The- I traded it in. 
to get the Italian. That's quite an upgrade. There's, I, yes, there's a indeed. company around the corner right now that sells electrified things. Oh. Yeah, they take full modern electric uh, underpinnings and they put it in a, I, I do not remember the name of the company, but they put it in a Volkswagen thing. So the old school thing, in essence, becomes your city runabout. Of course, just don't ever crash. Yeah. into anything ever right <laughs> well let's take a quick break right now and we'll come up with a uh, round two with mr alex Trebek, where we're going to talk about the english moors okay all right sure this is a little to learn with austin rogers moments ago alex mentioned his volkswagen thing Today, on A Little to Learn, we're going to learn a little bit about uh, the world's largest automaker, Volkswagen. Here we go. Ferdinand Porsche, yes, that Ferdinand Porsche, was tasked by Adolf Hitler, yes, that Adolf Hitler, to create a German people's car or the Volkswagen. He created the KDF Wagen or Strength Through Joy car. So VW's origins and Porsche's is steeped in Nazi Germany. But in all of that, it would have been a moot point, a footnote in history, without British Army Major Ivan Hurst. After World War II, Hurst was in charge of all factories within the British-occupied zone, and that included the KDF Stadt, or what would be renamed Volkswagen's Wolfsburg factory. Originally using it to maintain allied equipment, Hearst found a left-behind KDF wagon, found the factory to be fully functional, and then convinced the British Army to order 20,000 KDF wagons to use in occupied Germany and as a way to rehabilitate the local German economy. Even though the factory only had a partial roof, it was producing 1,000 cars a month only one year after the end of the war. Later on, in 1948, the factory was offered for free by the British government to British, American, and French automakers. All refused, the Brits saying, quote, the car is quite unattractive to the motor car buyer, unquote, and Henry Ford II's aide advising, quote, Mr. Ford, I don't think what we're being offered here is worth a dime, unquote. The KDF wagon would be renamed the Type 1, better known as the Beetle, and in 2003, the 21,529,464th and final model rolled off the assembly line, and it could have been Ford the whole time. This has been a little to learn with Austin Rogers, and now back to a lot to learn. Still, unfortunately, with Austin Rogers. At this point, we took a break, and Alex showed me to his garage. Indeed, he does have too many belt sanders, and a wall of his garage looks much like a hardware store, mostly because several years ago, he bought the stock of a defunct hardware store. While showing me his workbenches and immaculately organized walls of tools, paints, washers, and miscellany, he discovered standing water on the concrete floor. Alex tracked the leak to a corner, explained that a valve mustn't have been closed after his last irrigation work, and then said, I'll be right back. He went to investigate. I went back to his office and awaited his return, and when he did, we sat down and began the second part of the interview. Tune in next week when Alex and I talk about his family vacations to the English countryside and his overwhelming affection for the works and lives of the Bronte sisters. And now, part two of my interview with Alex Trebek. Enjoy. Before Gene and I got married, I, I envisioned a romantic holiday for us, so we traveled there and we walked the moors in the rain, and uh, we've been back there now four or five times. Welcome to A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Thank you for joining us for a very special A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. 
If you didn't tune in last week, please check out part one of my two-part interview with Alex Trebek because, well, this is part two. I'll wait. Now that everyone's up to speed... As we concluded last week, Mr. Alex Trebek, host of Jeopardy and cultural icon, showed me his garage, discovered a leak therein, and excused himself to investigate. In the meantime, I sat a while in Alex's home office with my producer, Maria, and Allison, Jeopardy's director of communications. We idly chat for a few minutes until Alex's return, and then began on Alex's travels in England and his love of the Brontes. I hope you enjoy part two of this very special interview. Welcome back for part two with America's best friend and Canada's best friend, Alex Trebek. Thank you again, Alex, for uh, allowing us to interview you in your lovely home. Um, but you've got a home away from home according to many sources, and that is your and Jean's love of the English countryside and that of the Brontes. Yeah, and this year, Jean's birthday was on September 12th, and I decided, I told her a couple of weeks before that, I said, you know what, sweetie, why don't we go to England and visit Haworth, the home of the Brontes, and spend a little time in Yorkshire. And she was so surprised she started to cry because I, I don't usually do things like that. And uh, we did. We were gone six days. We had a marvelous time. I'll show you some pictures. And uh, as a side trip while we were there, I took her to visit Whitby. Now, you're a Jeopardy champion. Whitby, a fishing village on the northeast coast of England. What is it famous for, among other things? Whitby, a fishing village on the northeast east coast of england yikes we had our picture taken by a local and oddly enough it just happened to coincide with us standing next to a sign that said myths and legends okay who would be mythological in the northeast coast and fishing ooh i don't know whitby was Count Dracula's place of arrival in England. Oh, really? Yep. I did not know that. This one you don't need to see. It's just uh, just before we started shooting the Tournament of Champions, I uh, had them take a picture of me with my facial hair growing in. <laughs> it's going to disappear. And then this is Gene and the kids. The kids flew in uh, on Gene's birthday from... California and New York just to surprise her and they surprised her while we were touring the Bronte Parsonage that's right the building behind us and uh, so they he, showed up while you guys were there yep that's that's a military operation there keeping that under wraps yeah but uh, you have to keep in mind uh, Emily is so sharp and what she had done before we left on vacation she picked up Jean's cell phone and she said, let me just make sure that you have it uh, set properly for when you go to Europe and you'll be able to use it while you're in England. But what she did was she pressed some buttons that shows you where that phone is. <laughs> she turned on the tracking? The tracker. <laughs> and so she knew exactly where both of them landed in England 
at around <laughs> 7.30 in the morning. Matthew rented a car. They drove two hours to Haworth, the home of the Brontes, and they knew exactly where we were in the, in muse- the grounds. In the museum. <laughs> and they walked up the rear stairs and surprised her. And this is me on that trip also because I wanted Jeannie to uh, uh, spend a little time with me at some of the old abandoned Cistercian abbeys. That was fountains. Was this one of the ones destroyed during Henry VIII's purge of the oh, abbeys? Yeah, they yeah. were all destroyed during right. Henry VIII's purge. Yeah. And so this was fountains, a beautifully uh, laid out one. And we also spent time at Revo Abbey. And in Manchester itself, which was kind of pleasant. It's a, it's a lovely city. It's it's on the up and up. Yeah. And uh, it has two marvelous soccer teams, so that pleases the... English it has Island. zero marvelous soccer teams, from my opinion. <laughs> uh, there's a fo- show we watch uh, called... Um, the Million Pound Menu, and it has um, it has uh, restaurant aspiring restaurateurs uh, uh, talk to. It's sort of Shark Tank for restaurants, and they talk to a group of investors, and the investors to give each of these restaurateurs a test case actually do the test restaurant in Manchester, which I thought was curious, but it seems to be on the pulse of urban uh, Britain more than London is. And they can, if it plays in Manchester, it will obviously play in London, but it will then play in Sheffield and Birmingham and stuff like that. And also another thing, another thing that's happening up there in Yorkshire, Yorkshire has developed a great culinary following and they have all the agriculture they need there all the products and it's farm to table sort of thing and they are a going part of england right now they're happening right Yorkshire, and we love it and driving through the countryside and the the automobile we rented was a mid-sized car thank god Oh, because the roads. Uh, the roads, because the GPS took me down roads that were just as wide as the car. And you're going down this road, and all of a sudden you come face-to-face with a big tractor. And someone has to back up. The you're, middle guy. You're that, you're that someone. But uh, a wonderful experience. Great time. The weather turned out to be perfect. It looks fantastic. Yeah, I mean, like, you've got bluebirds. Drizzled just a little bit when we were at the Bronte house. But that was it. Well, you need a little bit of that color to uh, to give the uh, the Heathcliff and uh, Catherine uh, experience. But the disappointment for me was that because of my weakness now and my legs not being able to carry me, we couldn't walk any of the motors. I, I you know, I could barely walk upstairs at the Bronte Parsonage. But uh, nevertheless. We had a good time. Looks like a great trip. Yep. Where'd this love of uh, where this love of the Brontes and the English North come from? Don't know. The movie Wuthering Heights, of course, inspired me. That's the uh, Olivia De Havilland no, and no, no. nope. Which one was that? Uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence Olivier, yeah. And uh, wasn't Olivia De Havilland? Who was no, it? No, I forgot. Thinking Gloria Swanson. But no, I should know this because just don't just don't. If I ever come back, just don't ask me this one. Just okay. let let me let me skip this one. I'll leave this one out. Uh, yeah, the old the old movie. Also, how green was my valley? Isn't that doesn't that take place in the? Uh... No, that's Wales. Oh, that's Wales. That's the Welsh mining. Community. Got it. That's still. Uh... But uh, yeah, the the movie um, 
always touched me. And uh, before Gene and I got married, I, I envisioned a romantic holiday for us. So we traveled there and we walked the moors in the rain. And uh, we've been back there now four or five times. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we always enjoy it. It's, it's a lovely countryside. It's really people cool. People are very friendly. And uh, we've stayed in tiny little places. Uh, there are some rooms that are rented out above an apothecary shop right across the street from the church. And we were at a bed and breakfast not too far away from there. And uh, this time we were at a, a very swanky hotel in just outside of Ripon uh, in North Yorkshire, uh, Swinton Abbey. And That's a classic name. Yeah, 20,000 acres, so it's pretty big. The the abbey, the, the building itself is fairly old, and uh, but quaint and nice and... Uh, Good food and friendly people, and you can't ask for much more than that. That's awesome. I I, I don't have a greatest hits place where I just want to keep going back because I, I guess I just haven't traveled enough yet. So like, if I it'll come. Yeah, I, if I settle down, maybe Bali. I really like Bali, the the old Hindu, uh, old Buddhist uh, temples and uh, and the old Hindu temples and. Uh, well, as long as you combine the old Buddhist temples and the old Hindu temples. With a Four Seasons hotel, <laughs> uh, then you're fine. Yes. Well, at this point, I made a critical error. I've been to Bali, and it was stupid of me to label Bali as Buddhist. It's not. It's Hindu. An island of Hinduism in the world's most populous Muslim nation, Indonesia. How did that happen? Well, here's a little to learn. This is a little to learn with Austin Rogers. How did Bali become Hindu in the world's most populous Muslim nation? Here we go. Indonesia is an archipelago nation of over 17,000 islands located in the south of the southern tip of Southeast Asia and stretching 3,181 miles from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Bali is a tiny island more or less in the south center of this archipelago, directly off the coast of Java, Indonesia's most populous island. Java, along with the rest of Indonesia, is 87.2% Muslim, yet 83.5% of the 4.2 million person population of Bali is Hindu. While historians don't have a clear picture on when exactly Hinduism arrived in Indonesia, most agree that it had been there since at least the 1st century CE. In the 5th century CE, a Chinese explorer reported major schools of Hinduism in Java, so it was well established by then. A thousand years later, in about 1400 CE, Muslim sultans from mainland Asia began invading, then carving up kingdoms in Indonesia, forcing Indonesia's Hindus into increasingly isolated pockets. One of these defensible pockets was the island of Bali. Hinduism might have been completely marginalized, if not for the sultans fighting amongst one another, and then the arrival of the forces of Dutch colonization. 
invasion. This effectively halted the encroachment of other religions upon the island, and Bali maintained its status as a Hindu bastion. In 1945, the constitution of the newly independent Indonesia stipulated religious freedom, but the Muslim-majority government soon created laws that disenfranchised any member of a religion that is non-monotheistic, does not have a prophet, and doesn't have a holy book to create religious laws. But Balinese Hindus adapted, merely decreeing their form of Hinduism to be monotheistic due to the overarching, undivided, infinite nature of the divine, absolute cosmic law, and petitioned the Indonesian government, had their definition of monotheism accepted, and were declared an official religion of Indonesia. A perpetual reminder of this story is embodied in the Kanang Sari, small offerings of fruits, nuts, and flowers placed on the streets of Bali in thanks to Song Hyang Hwitiwasa, the Agama Hindu Dharma, or Supreme One God of Balinese Hinduism. This has been A Little to Learn with Austin Rogers. And now back to A Lot to Learn. Still, unfortunately, with Austin Rogers. Yes, well, that is around the corner, okay. and it has got a very nicely manicured uh, uh, grounds, uh, but maybe a little bit lower than the Four Seasons. Sometimes, so uh, if you need travel advice, you can always come to me. Too many, uh, too many staff uh, sort of freak me out. I don't like being overly waited on, and like when you round a corner and you see, you know, another guy saying, "How are you today, sir? Can I help you with anything?" I'm like, I'm just walking to my room. I'm just walking to my room. Leave me alone. And if you go to the Four Seasons in Bali, they have houses, small houses, and you're pretty much separate from uh, the main part of the hotel, and you have your own little uh, dipping pool uh, right outside your bedroom, and you don't have to be bothered if you don't want to be bothered by staff or other people, and uh, it's kind of nice. Actually, that sounds way better, yeah, since I don't like people too much. Um What's the uh, what's the next travel? Where are you thinking next? Oh, I have to go back to Canada in a couple of weeks for the uh, my alma mater, the University of Ottawa. I'm introducing our guest speaker in the Trebek Dialogue Program, and then because I'm honorary president of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, while I'm there, I'll have to attend an event for them, and then I come back here. And outside of that, I don't have anything that's on the radar in terms of long-distance travel. But oddly enough, uh, Jeannie and I didn't mind the long flight from Los Angeles to Manchester, and there is a direct flight from L.A., uh, 10 hours. Uh, Coming home, for some reason, there wasn't uh, a direct flight. I had to fly from Manchester to uh, Amsterdam and then Amsterdam home, so it made for a very long day. But coming back, you always get it, get over it much faster than going over in the other direction because you're yeah, because you're the just way- dealing with a longer day as opposed to a change of day and night going over. But uh, so I can see us. Uh, we've supported World Vision charities in uh, Africa, and uh, they would like us to come back because. We adopted a village that has grown, and uh, we've helped expand the school and the medical facilities, and they'd like us to come back and, you know, be fated. And uh, so we may do that. How can people donate to that if they are so inclined? Oh, just go to worldvision.com, and uh, you'll be able to donate. I mean, they're they're a major charity in the world for uh, children's uh, sponsorship and also for emergency relief and for working on changing communities. They're working in uh, northern Kenya 
in a small village where female genital mutilation is mm -hmm. practiced. And uh, we're trying to stop the community from doing that. And they've been the uh, village leaders, male, of course, uh, have been very accommodating. And they are understanding how unfair it is to those young girls to uh, that to undergo that practice. How and does one open that dialogue in such a, a, a cloistered uh, cultural mindset? Well, it may be a cloistered cultural mindset, but keep in mind that there are always people out there with cell phones and who are connected to the Internet and the world, and they know that the world is a very different place, and women have achieve their rightful place in our society and not in every society but it's changing and it's changing for the better and they recognize that i mean they understand that uh, for instance in so many communities the ones who earn the money and the ones who are the best risks for lenders are the women are the women who pay back the loans yep the men kind of just lollygag around yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so we're very happy to be able to support World Vision in that and some other charities as well. So, good. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's our time right now. Okay. Alex, this has been an immense, immense pleasure. Thank you so much for being so hospitable. Uh, and everyone, tune into uh, what's the name of that game show again? Uh, it's the one that's right next to Wheel of Fortune. Right. Jeopardy. 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 Yeah. Jeopardy. On your, check your local listings to see uh, Mr. Alex Trebek and Jeopardy. And uh, Tournament of Champions in uh, early November. Tournament of Champions airs in early November. Thank you very much, Alex. Okay. Thank you so very much for joining us. If you found this Jeopardy-related content interesting, be sure to check out my other episodes on Jeopardy. What is Jeopardy's strategy with the one and only Buzzy Cohen? and an analysis of the brave new world of Jeopardy in the episode entitled What is the James Holsauer Era? with Jeopardy! champions Keith Williams and Monica Tew. Before we let you go, here's my question of the week, recorded live at the Wayland on 50th Street and 10th Avenue in New York City. If you think you know the answer, tweet it at me to at Austin Tylero, and let me know what you think and what other questions you'd like to hear about, or else you'd like to know for a little to learn as well. That's at Austin Tylero, T-Y-L-E-R-R-O on Twitter. Number eight. Number eight in advertising. In 1959, this one-word headline launched Volkswagen's revolutionary Think Small campaign. A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers has been produced by Maria Gibson, Limitless Media, and myself, Austin Rogers. Please follow me on Instagram at A-U-G-R-A-27, at Twitter on the at Twitter at AustinTylero.Twitter.Whatever, and all those other things. If you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe via Apple Podcasts and Spotify and the Spitchers and the Switchers and the Googles and the Boogles and the Moogly Doogly Googlies. I did not write this portion out. See you guys next week. Thank you very much.